so today I thought I'd give you a taste of that by going to one of my favorite psalms, one that has given me a great encouragement during difficult times in my life, and that is Psalm 46. So if you could please, please be turning to Psalm 46 in your Bibles. And as you're turning there, I want to have you imagine something with me. Just picture yourself going back in time, 130 years, and you find yourself on a passenger ship that is traveling from the east coast of the U.S., from New York to Europe. I want you to picture yourself on that ship. Picture yourself on the deck, the cool ocean breeze blowing over you. You have the scene? Now, don't picture it too intently or you'll fall asleep on me, but just just imagine yourself on that ship 130 years ago. And as you're sitting there enjoying the sun and the ocean breeze, you notice a man who's standing at the railing. This man is looking out over the water, and as he's looking, he is crying. And he also, from time to time, looks on the water and then looks down, and he's writing something on a piece of paper. And then he'll look up again, and again the tears begin to flow. And and you watch this man for several minutes because you're curious as to what it is that he's thinking and what he is writing. Well, it's then the man sees you. And he notices that you were looking at him, and so he invites you to sit and have a chat. You feel awkward at first because he caught you staring at him, but there's something about his eyes and something about his uh, smile, even with the tears on his face, that's just very welcoming. And so you sit with this man, and he begins to tell you his story, because you can't help but ask him, Sir, I, I noticed that you were crying. Is anything wrong? Well, this man proceeds to tell you that he's been going through very difficult times. He lost a four-year-old son a few years earlier to scarlet fever. And then he mentions how not long after that, he suffered through the great fires in Chicago of 1871 and lost most of his business and most of his holdings. And that's when his voice grows softer. And he says to you, friend, that's not the worst of it. He pauses a moment. He says, sir, uh, my family have been traveling on this same uh, ocean liner, uh, this same cruise a few weeks earlier. Their ship was struck by another ship and it went down in just a few minutes. My wife and my four daughters were on that ship. And there he pauses, his voice at this point is almost a whisper, and he said, friend, my four daughters drowned that day. Well, you stand there speechless. What do you say? What would you say in such a situation? A lump begins to form in your own throat. And as you are just uh, filled with the emotion of hearing what this man has experienced, you can't help but notice that though he is sad, he seems at peace. Though he is grieving, he seems calm. Well, as you've been talking with this man, the ship had been slowing down. And it's at that moment in the conversation, the captain of the ship approaches him and says, sir, we believe this is where your family's ship went down. Well, the man gets up and excuses himself and he walks over to the railing in order to spend some time. The captain had graciously stopped the ship so that he could remember his daughters that had died there. And as the man moves over to the railing, you can't help but wonder just what it was that he was writing on that pad of paper. He left it in the chair next to you, and so you couldn't help but look over. And when you do, you see these words upon that piece of paper. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. 
You see, the man who wrote that well-known hymn, Horatio Spafford, he did not write it during a time of blessing in his life. He did not write it in a nice, comfortable room, sitting behind a beautiful desk or behind a piano. He wrote that song, or at least a part of it. He forged it over the watery graves of his own little girls on that ship in the middle of the Atlantic. And you know, as I remember and recall that story, that great hymn, I I, I can't help but wonder, how could a man who suffered so much respond by writing one of the most beloved and incredible hymns, a hymn that is full of trust in God. How could a man who's experienced it write such a song like that at the very moment of his discouragement and despair? Reminds me too of Job, right? He lost even more. Ten children died. But isn't he the one who said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord? And as I think about these reactions, do they seem just impossible to you? It's incredible to think about. How could someone have such peace, such faith, such trust in God in the midst of perhaps one of the worst things anyone can experience, the loss of a child? And in this case, the loss of several children. The famous reformer, Martin Luther, he faced many hardships in life too. And In those times of trial, he found great comfort in the Psalms, particularly Psalm 46. In fact, there's a a well-known quote from Luther that he would often say when he was greatly discouraged or depressed, he would say, come, let us sing the 46th Psalm and let them do their worst. In fact, Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, guess which psalm that hymn is based upon? Psalm 46. And so if you would... Again, please stand one more time as I read from Psalm 46, where we are going to see this morning how to find comfort in the midst of difficult times. Psalm 46. It begins for the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah, set to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar, the kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Oh Lord, what a, what a hymn. What a song. What a statement of who you are and what you are for us, especially in the midst of difficult times. God, I know that many of us now are experiencing hardship and trials. I know all of us, Lord, will face such things in the coming days or 
weeks or months or even years ahead. God, may you use this psalm, may you use your word to bring us strength and encouragement and faith, especially in those times of distress. And we pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom you raised from the dead so that we might have life. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, the title of this psalm tells us that it was written by the sons of Korah. These were uh, men who were of the family of Levites that King David had appointed to be the singers and musicians to lead in temple worship. And notice the title says that this psalm was a song. It was meant to be sung by God's people. We aren't told exactly when this song was written, but we can see from the psalm itself that it may have been during a time where God rescued, rescued his people from battle, from a time when they were facing a great enemy. Most scholars believe this psalm was written not long after the events which took place in the reign of King Hezekiah, when the Assyrians had had gone through. They were the same Assyrians who had taken the ten northern tribes into exile and then began a, a decisive march through the southern kingdom of Judah, had defeated several cities and had made their way to Jerusalem itself. And 185,000 man army surrounded Jerusalem. And God delivered them in an incredible way. It's believed that this psalm was written not long after that. Notice the structure of this psalm. It has three stanzas. Each of them are separated by the Hebrew word salah. The exact meaning of that word is not uh, confidently known for certain, but most Old Testament scholars agree that it was intended to be some form of instruction to the reader or to the choir master to pause. To pause to allow time to reflect, to reflect on what had just been sung. Each of the three stanzas here focus on God as our refuge, as our security, as our strength. And notice here the refrain at the end of the second and third stanzas. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Notice too how the poem begins and ends. It begins with God as our refuge and ends with he is our stronghold. That is the emphatic theme of this psalm. It cries out that God is our shelter, that he is our refuge. That He is where we are to run for protection. That He is our refuge from enemies. He is our refuge from judgment. He is our refuge from danger. He's our refuge from distress. The sons of Korah want to make it very clear to us that God is the one we must run to in time of trouble. That God is the one that we must find shelter in during the storms of life. That He is our refuge from the troubles that we face. That He is our castle of protection against enemy fortress, that God is indeed a mighty fortress. And brothers and sisters, the message of this psalm is simply this. Take comfort in God, our refuge. Take comfort in God, our refuge. And here we're going to find in this psalm three ways to find comfort in God, our refuge, especially during times of distress. The first way is declared in the first stanza in verses 1 to 3. And there we will see that take comfort in God's presence. Take comfort in His presence. Look again with me at the first stanza. And notice again how the psalm begins. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Now that word refuge means a protection. A protection in times of distress. But it not only means a protection, it also conveys this idea of of a protection when the situation is dire. When we are totally helpless, totally unable to do anything to protect ourselves. 
It emphasizes that God is the one who's able to protect in those times. It, it reminds me of, you know, just um, this weekend, we were weak. We were up at my parents' house in, uh, near Yosemite, and there was a lightning storm there. And lightning storms here in California are nothing like those in the Midwest. We had a few lightning strikes, a little bit of thunder, but any of you have visited the Midwest or lived there, you know <laughs> we have no idea what a real lightning storm is like, right? I still remember a time when my wife and I were in Colorado and we were traveling to a relative's house and we were in the middle of this lightning storm and we somehow made it to the house and we're sitting there and as the thunder is going, this house is shaking. It's literally shaking. They thought it was an earthquake. You see these bright flashes in the window and then the, the house is rumbling and, and I was thinking, you know, what idiot would be outside standing there looking at this kind of a storm? We tried to do that in Idaho one time and a lightning strike hit our neighbor's yard about 50 or 100 feet away. Tina and I rushed back into the house after that moment. But, you know, in the middle of one of these storms, you're like, I need a place of refuge. There's nothing I could do in the face of such power. In fact, my mother was telling me this week that a, her, a friend of hers, her mother actually was struck by lightning and killed uh, in Missouri when she was growing up. It's a great power and a great reminder that we must take refuge. Well, that's really the theme and the focus of this psalm. David expressed the same idea in other places. He said in Psalm 37, verse 40, The Lord helps and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. The word strength here in verse 1 of Psalm 46 has the idea of a, a power for defense and protection. But even more than that, it's, it's this power that is a source of strength for us. Psalm 28, verse 7 expresses a similar idea. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him and I am helped. And so here in the very first verse of this psalm, we see that the psalmist declaring emphatically that God is a protection, but not only that, that He's a source of strength and encouragement in the midst of those times of trouble. And notice in verse 1, it says, God makes Himself available to give us strength always in times of trouble. The Hebrew is emphatic here, both in the form of the verb and also the addition of the word very. It's this idea of an ongoing, continuous protection. That when trials come, God is not far away. He is ready to be found. He is near. He is present. Brothers and sisters, in those times of fear, in those times of distress, in those times where you just wonder, where is God? Is He even here? What's the answer in this psalm? Emphatically, yes, he's a very present. That means always present, always there, always ready to help. He does not leave his children. He is always there. Amen? It's such a comfort. As his child, you don't have to search and wonder. You don't have to think, you know, as I'm praying, is God even listening? Now, sometimes it may feel like that. But we have to remind ourselves, yes, He is. There are times when we are unsure. There are times that we doubt. Sometimes that we doubt that if He even cares. But here we are reminded He is a constant, ever-present, always available refuge, protection in time of distress. And it is that truth, if you meditate upon it, it is that truth that will produce the faith needed in the moment when it's required. That's the truth that Horatio Spafford leaned upon and depended on. Just look at the words of his psalm or of his song. That's the truth that Job leaned upon, and it is a truth that Martin Luther 
trusted in. That God is a very present help, refuge, protection in time of distress. We see that faith expressed here in response by the psalm writer. Take a look at verses 2 and 3. Here he expresses the attitude of one who takes refuge in God, the kind of faith that that this truth will instill. Because God is an always present help in trouble, notice he says, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. It's an interesting picture here that the psalmist is describing. It's one of great upheaval. The word change here has the idea of a violent removal. The ESV puts it this way, the earth gives way. Now, we who live here in Los Angeles, we don't need anybody to explain the original Hebrew on this one, do we? (laughs) We know exactly what this is. We know exactly what it means when the earth changes. How many of you were around in the 94 quake in Northridge? You guys remember that? Tina and I lived a little over a mile away from the epicenter. We were in a uh, two-story apartment at the time. And I can still remember, I'm never going to forget, running down the hallway trying to get to Bethany, who was in a crib at the time. And I still remember, and as going down that hallway, I was being thrown from one wall to the next to the next. I never experienced anything like it. Now imagine an earthquake so severe that these mountains around us actually sank into the heart of the ocean. You know, people joke about that, right? Let's buy some property on the border of Arizona, so then someday it'll be beachfront property, right? Well, that's what the psalmist is describing here. If he were writing it to us in Los Angeles, he would be saying that. Buy some property in Arizona, because what if you were going through a situation where these mountains dropped? I mean, this is a massive earthquake. There have been some massive earthquakes in the world. Uh, we were up uh, in Alaska several years ago and we saw pictures of there was a 9.6 or some just huge earthquake that took place in Alaska. But there, and even in that magnitude, the mountains didn't slip down. There were great cracks in the ground. This is a massive earthquake that he's describing here. The psalmist wants us to understand his great confidence. But he doesn't stop there, does he? Notice verse 3. He continues to expand on this picture. He says there, though its waters, what waters? The waters of the sea roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. What's he talking about there? He's describing a scene. An earthquake's taken place. And now the the ocean waters, they roar and they foam. And they're so massive that if, if the mountains had emotions, the mountains that remained, they'd be terrified seeing the wave coming towards them. What's that a picture of? Tsunami. If you were to live in Asia, you'd know exactly what he's talking about here. A great tsunami. The earthquake has taken place, but it's not done. Now he's describing the ocean waters coming back upon the land. And the original Hebrew here just describes this chaos. Roar and foam. It's turbulent. This is a massive tsunami that he's describing here. And so in this first stanza of the poem, the psalmist is revealing the most terrible of natural disasters. And yet notice his attitude. Though the waters roar and foam, really in the, the original, be the idea of let them, let its waters roar and foam. Let them come. Let the mountains quake at the swelling pride. We will not fear. We will not be afraid. Now, why could he have such confidence in the midst of such a disaster? Because, he says, God is our refuge. <laughs> it's great faith. Yet many think that that kind of faith is unfounded. Many times during tragedies, people often say, where is God? 
You know, brothers and sisters, the issue is not whether God is here or whether he is a refuge. The issue is whether or not you go to him. The issue is whether or not you trust him and take refuge in him. During trials, the message in this first stanza is this. Take comfort in God's presence. Take comfort in his presence. He's an ever-ready help in times of distress. He's not some distant, uncaring God. He's not some deity that has no concern for the distress that you are suffering. He is full of compassion. Is he not? What did Jesus do when he was on this earth? Did he put himself in a cave or a house somewhere and stay away from people and just threw out little messages of what he had come to do? Where was he during his ministry? Always among us. And what was he doing? How did he treat the leper? What did he do when a person who was blind came to him or deaf? How did he treat those who were suffering? What did he do for the lame and the helpless? Did he ignore them? Did he tell them, look, I've got more important things to do. I don't have time for you. Did he turn away? Or did he show compassion? Was he not a refuge? He took time. He was a very present help in time of trouble. And he still is. Take note of that word salah at the end of verse 3. And just take a moment to reflect on the fact that God is a very present help in trouble. He will give peace and strength no matter what the storms of life bring. There's a second way the psalmist gives us to find comfort in God during difficult times, and that's found in the second stanza in verses 4 to 7. And it is there we see take comfort in His protection. Take comfort in His presence, and then secondly, take comfort in His protection. Look again at verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. Let's stop there a minute. Do you see the contrast here? What did he just been picturing in the previous two verses? It's great turbulence, this massive natural disaster, this upheaval. And then here in verse 4, it's this picture of a peaceful stream flowing through Jerusalem. It goes from massive noise and chaos to peace and calm. Now, some scholars believe this was merely a a poetic statement because there are no rivers that flow through Jerusalem. And yet, if you remember, during the time in those days of Hezekiah when they were under siege, he actually did build a canal into the city so that they would have a source of water. In fact, Hezekiah's tunnel was discovered not long ago and exists there today. There's still water in it, I believe. But in any case, why this change of scenery? This Large contrast from chaos to calm. Well, take a look at verse 5. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice and the earth melted. Why was there such calm and peace in the midst of chaos? Because God is there. God is there, he says. He is in the midst of the city. He protected her. That word moved that's used here is the same word that was used in verse 2. In that case where before the mountains moved from the quake, the quaking earth. But here the city will not be moved. It will not be overrun. It will not be destroyed because God is there. We find here in verses 5 and 6 the clue as to what was likely happening during the time when this psalm was written. They were facing an enemy, a great enemy, 
that was, had surrounded the city and God was a protection for her. And notice God's protection is described here that he will help her when morning dawns. And this reminds us that the city is not made safe from her enemies by a human army, but by the God of armies. And like the roar of the sea in verse 3, notice there's another roar in verse 6. The roar of this enemy that had come upon Jerusalem. But then there's a greater roar that God will roar. Look at verse 6. He will raise his voice. The enemies will be stopped. Again, notice the faith of the psalmist here. Great faith, great trust. And at this point, perhaps somebody may be thinking, all right, so what is this psalm that's you know, written 2,700 so or so years ago that's thousands of miles away from us? What does this have to do with us? We're not surrounded by an enemy army. In fact, as I look outside, I just see a bunch of cars. I don't see any threat to us at this point in time. So how would this psalm be meaningful or helpful or apply to us? I think the answer is obvious, is it not? Are there not times in your life where you face great distress? Are there not times in your life when you are tempted to fear? Are there not times of sickness or the sins of others or the troubles of life or the attacks of the evil one? Will they come upon you like a fierce army? And in those times, brothers and sisters, where do you go for help? What do you turn to? Do you take refuge in God? If not, that'd be like running outside in a great lightning storm holding up an umbrella. Will that really protect you? This psalm reminds us that not only do we take comfort in God's presence, but also and especially in His protection. Because listen, do you realize no circumstance, no person, no natural disaster, no power, no other being, nothing is able to do anything beyond what God allows. Do you believe that? Daniel says no one can ward off his hand. No one can stop God and no one can overpower God and no one and nothing can do anything unless God allows it. We're under his protection. Listen to Psalm 118. Psalm 118 verse 1 says, Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. From my distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We know Romans 8. I mentioned it a few moments ago. Romans 8.35, those amazing words of comfort. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? For I'm convinced. I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to what? Separate us from the love of God in Christ. You know, we've heard those words many times. But do you take them to heart, especially in trial, especially when suffering, especially in difficulty? Do you believe those words? Do you rely on God's protective presence? Do you trust him? It reminds me of that scene in um, Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian. I don't know how many of you have seen this, but there was a scene where the army had gathered and they were getting ready to cross a bridge to attack. And there's little Lucy... Remember her, the youngest? And she's standing on the other side of the bridge and she pulls this knife out slowly and it's like this little dagger. 
this little girl standing facing this massive army of men with horses and spears, and she, there's this little smile on her face because in the next scene you see Aslan walk up behind her. This psalm reminds me a little bit of that. Why can we have confidence in the midst of great trials? Who is standing behind us and in front of us and around us? Nothing can separate us from God. In a much greater way, we can take comfort in God's protection. That's the truth that's declared in verse 7 where he says, The Lord of hosts, or Yahweh of hosts, is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. That word hosts can often refer to the the heavenly uh, bodies, the sun, moon, and stars. But it also, and I think here is referring to, given the context, the armies of heaven, the angelic beings, millions of angels. Here we're reminded that the one who commands this incredible force of angelic beings is the same one who is with his children. He is with us. Didn't we sing that just a few moments ago? Our God is with us. Then who can stand against us? Again, notice that word Salah at the end of verse 7. Reminds us to pause and think a moment about just what it means that God is our protection. In times of distress, not only can you take comfort in His presence, not only can you take comfort in His protection, but thirdly, you can take comfort in God's providence. And that's the focus of the last stanza here in verses 8 through 11. Take a look with me again at verse 8. The psalmist says, Come, behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Now notice that that word early in verse 8, behold. Again, it's this way in Hebrew to emphatically state, stop. Whatever you're doing, take a stop. Look, consider, notice. God is the one who brings desolations on the earth. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, again, think if this is speaking of the time in Hezekiah's day when the angel of the Lord went out after Hezekiah's prayer, went out the next day, wiped out the 185,000 man army. Actually, it was in the night that he did it. And there's that famous line in Isaiah that says, uh, Behold, they woke up in the morning and they were dead. Yeah, I've been trying to figure that one out too. But here, verse 9, it says that it is God who ends wars, not human armies. Notice it says here, God breaks the bow, he shatters the spear, he burns the chariots. Today, today's language, we might say something like he breaks apart the M16s, he dismantles the missiles, he melts the tanks. And listen, beloved, this reminds us that ultimately it is God who controls the weaponry, not the man who holds the weapon. How in the world do you think we've not destroyed ourselves by a nuclear war? Because human beings have self-control? Because no machine in the history of the human race has ever malfunctioned? Who is it that's controlling these things? The message here, God is in control. He is sovereign over the events of the earth, even the chaos of war. Daniel 2.21 says, It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. And as I quoted earlier in Daniel 4.35, God does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What have you done? God is the one who raised up 
those Assyrians. He is the one who raised up the Babylonians after them, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. God is the one who raised up Russia, Germany, Iran, Britain, Spain, China, Mexico, Nigeria, Brazil, America. God is the one who raised up these nations. And in his time, he is the one will take, he will take them down. Kingdom after kingdom, nation after nation, ruler after ruler. God is the one who is sovereign. It is his providence which determines the events of human history. Psalm 135, verse 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all in the deeps. Ephesians 1.11 tells us that it is God who works all things after the counsel of His will. And so Psalm 46 is just reminding us of that. He is the one who determines the outcome of things. The enemy nation that has surrounded the city, God is the one who will take care of that. He is the one who will determine the outcome. He will decide the result. And that's why He says in verse 10, look there with me, He says these words, and this is the heart of the psalm. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted among the earth. This is the response that God tells us to have when we face difficult trials. Notice here he says, cease striving. That's the idea of relax. Be still. Some of you may have a plaque in your house that says, be still and know that I am God. This is the passage that it comes from now why do you think he says this why do you think he he uh reflects this statement and did you notice something very interesting here did you notice the change in pronoun all the way up to verse 10 verses 1 to 9 the pronouns were he in reference to god or god or him but notice what is the pronoun what are the pronouns used here in verse 10 i i now why do you think This is the way it is. Why do you think the psalmist did this? It's meant to draw our attention. It's the main point of the entire psalm. This is what he's been aiming at the whole time. This is the truth that we are meant to take away and grasp and hold on to and meditate upon, especially when we are in difficult times. This is what we are to trust in in the time of suffering. God's saying here, look, stop striving. Relax. Let it go. Don't be anxious. Don't fret. Don't be wondering what's going to happen. Quit trying to take care of it on your own. I am the one God is saying in control. I am the only all-powerful king on this earth. Nothing will happen that will be outside of my will. And everything that happens will show that I am God, that I will be exalted. This great trial or suffering or circumstance will be used in some way to exalt God in heaven. God's reminding us of that. We need to listen to him because circumstances, they're out of our hands. Right? There's nothing ultimately we can control. And God's just reminding us of that. And he's saying, take comfort in my sovereign hand. Take comfort in the providence of God. I learned a valuable lesson about this very thing in that earthquake, that Northridge quake. You know, that night, it happened in the middle of the night. Remember, was it 3 or 4 in the morning? Something like that. All the lights were out, right? The power was gone. So we went outside, stayed in the car that night because I didn't know what damage had taken place in the apartment. In the morning, I went back into the apartment just to see, um, see if it was safe to go in. 
And as I was looking around in the various rooms, I came to our bedroom. We had a one-bedroom apartment at the time. I was a starving student, so that's all we had. And uh, we had um, Hannah. She was about a year and a half. She was sleeping in a playpen in the closet. Now, before you think bad things of me, it was a large closet, really big. And we had her playpen in there. And when I looked down into the playpen, I got sick to my stomach. Because as I looked there, I saw my tool chest, which I had foolishly put on the shelf above. Now you can think bad of me. Um, I had foolishly put on the shelf above, so there was the tool chest, the tools, a large fan had fallen. And you know what? In the middle of that playpen was the shape of where Hannah had been sleeping. Every one of those things missed her. And I just began to to cry, just thinking, you know what? God was looking over my little girl when I had no idea what was happening. And when I deserved, because of my foolishness, to have something much worse happen. Brothers and sisters, we have a kind and powerful God who's in control. One who is at work behind the scenes. He is the one who's able to deal with your difficult situation at work or that loss of a job or that tumor or sickness that you're suffering. Some of you have been suffering from poor health for a long time. Some of you have lost family members. God is able to work in those things. He's able to save your rebellious son or daughter. He's able to change the heart of your husband or your wife. He's able to provide a husband or a wife. God can do anything. And again, my question to you, brothers and sisters, is do you believe that? Do you take comfort in that? And again, the fact that our God is sovereign, the fact that that He is our protection, this doesn't mean that our lives are without trial. We've been reminded of that this very week, haven't we? With our dear Abby and the situation that took place with her and I know many of you going through different situations. We are reminded that, that though He is sovereign, this doesn't mean that our lives are going to be smooth. And it's hard to understand. Well, why would a sovereign God allow such things as this? Why would a sovereign God allow the loss of a parent or a child? Why would a sovereign God allow cancer in a young man or young woman? Why would a sovereign God allow a rebellious child in my home? Why would he allow the loss of a job? Why would he allow, Brandon, how long was it before you could adopt your son? Four years. Why would he allow these things? Jerry Bridges wrote one of my favorite books, Trusting God. And he wrote that book in response to losing his wife to cancer. And it caused in him many questions, many struggles. I want to read to you an excerpt from his book, a very personal statement that he made regarding this whole issue of God's sovereignty and difficult things. He said this, I knew the truth regarding God's sovereignty. What I had to do was to decide if I would trust him, even when my heart ached. He goes on to say, I will say this next statement as gently and compassionately as I know how. Our first priority in times of adversity is to honor and glorify God by trusting him. We tend to make our first priority the gaining of relief from our feelings of heartache or disappointment 
or frustration. This is a natural desire, and God has promised to give us grace sufficient for our trials and peace for our anxieties. But just as God's will is to take precedence over our will, so God's honor is to take precedence over our feelings. We honor God by choosing to trust Him when we don't understand what He is doing or why. Brothers and sisters, again, I know that all of us have or will experience trials, suffering. Perhaps you're at a low point in your life right now. Maybe you're on the verge of depression or despair. Perhaps someone near to you is close to death. Perhaps you may be just overwhelmed with life right now. You have a choice before you this morning. You've heard these words, Be still and know that I am God. Question is, how will you respond? What will you turn first when the calamity strikes? What will you do when that trial, or what are you doing, what have you done with that trial that's come upon you? Will you just try to ignore it? Pretend it isn't there? Will you rely on your own strength just to get by? Will you be paralyzed by it and wallow in despair? Will you try to run to alcohol or food or sex or drugs or entertainment or shopping? Will you try to look for refuge in another relationship? There's many more things we could add to that list, but my question is, why would we go to any of them? Why go there? They're not, you know what these things are? They're, they're an umbrella in the storm. And actually, it makes things worse because most umbrellas have a metal infrastructure. Right? Of course, there's one I bought at the 99 cent store for a dollar. I took it to the Philippines, and the first wind, it blew right off. <laughs> I might as well have just put the dollar bill above my head. For... <laughs> right? But, but all of these things, you know what? Satan has a variety of options that he will offer you. He just opens, opens up his overcoat and will offer you any. Yeah, you're going through difficulty and suffering. Here, I've got the very thing for you. Hundreds, thousands of options. But you see, Jesus Christ doesn't have a variety of escapes. He has only one remedy. Himself. And that's all we need. That's all we need. If you find yourself responding to trials often by not going to Him, if the normal course of your reaction is not running to Jesus for refuge then I have to ask you, do you really trust Him? Do you really trust Him? Have you really turned from your sins and put your complete faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you don't go to Him for refuge, then then I have to ask, is He really your Lord and Savior? Have you truly confessed your sins and put your trust in Him? Have you committed your life to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? Is He your Lord and Savior? Have you put your trust in Him? You know, the wonderful news is that Jesus is our great refuge. He's our great refuge from sin. He's our great refuge from hell. He's our great refuge from the power of Satan and from judgment. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen? And it is He alone who saves. We can't earn that our own works it only comes by embracing christ in faith 
alone. And if you have truly confessed your sins and put your trust in him, then listen to the words of this psalm. Take refuge in him, especially in the times of trouble. Take comfort in his presence. Take comfort in his protection. Take comfort in his providence. Brothers and sisters, just remember, God has a plan and purpose in everything. Praise God that he's good. Amen? He is sovereign. He is all-powerful. Praise God he's also good. And he's wise. He knows what he's doing. He really does. He cares. Psalm 46 tells us how to find comfort in trial, but again, it doesn't promise us that we won't have trials. But it does mean God will deliver us. Sometimes, though, it may not come right away. Sometimes it may not come in this life. You know Romans 8.28? You know it, right? God causes all things to work together haphazardly and without meaning or purpose. No. God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. You know, brothers and sisters, when your child comes to you and they've fallen, they've hurt themselves and they're in great pain, you may not necessarily be able to take away that pain, but you can hold them, right? God may allow your pain to continue, but He will hold you. I think I've shared this with you before, but I clearly remember the day Bree was born. And I clearly remember immediately when she came out, the first thing I remember is that she was breathing. <laughs> and then they rushed her into ICU, put her under this heat lamp, stuck all these probes in her, tubes everywhere. This poor little thing was miserable. She had just been taken from the nice, warm, protected shelter of her mommy. And now she's thrust upon this cold, well, hot, but metaphorically cold table. And I remember trying to comfort her, and I'm standing there trying to do what I can. And she's just agitated the whole day. She's miserable. She's suffering. She's hurt. She's scared. She doesn't know what's going on. No longer could she hear her mother's heartbeat next to her, but she hears the beeping of these machines and the, the noise and the hustling of nurses around the ICU. And my wife, Tina, had she had a C-section, so she wasn't able to come down and see Bree until that night. And I'll never forget this. When she brought her down, brought Tina, when they brought Tina down, and they took Bree from the table and put her in her mother's arms, and the very first word that Tina spoke, she said, Bree, immediately, that little baby was calm. I've never seen anything like it. She knew her mommy, and she knew she had found a place of refuge and protection, and she was at peace. And beloved, this is how it is with our God. You can be in great distress and trouble and fear, chaos all around you, not understanding what is going on in your life, but in the arms of Christ there is perfect peace. He is our refuge and strength. He is a very present help in trouble. Cease striving and know that He is God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a psalm. 
What a comforting reminder of the great truth that you are a refuge, a rock, a shelter, a cave, a protection, that you are with us, that you will never leave nor forsake us, that you are the one sovereignly in control of all things. Oh Lord, cause us to take to heart your instruction to us to cease striving and know that you are God, that you will be exalted, that your will will be accomplished, that the Lord Jesus Christ will be lifted up high and worshipped and praised and honored as he so rightly deserves, and that you will even use these trials and distresses and circumstances in our life to that very end. Lord, thank you for the comforting words of this psalm. Embed them in our hearts, we pray, so that we may run to these truths and run to you, especially in those times of great need. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.